This is the collection of atoms known as Jason Gotts, and you might be wondering what this show is all about. Think The Muppet Show with less comedy and no Muppets, but still the element of surprise. Each episode starts with a single word. I made this season in the middle of a pandemic, and like a lot of us in confinement, I felt hungry for connection with other people and with wild, open nature. So I asked nine friends for a single word each about the natural world. I thought about the word in an audio diary. I shared each word with a musician and asked them to write a song or two. I used each word to write a short story. And I talked to nine scientists, poets, songwriters, healers, and teachers about the word, about the natural world, and lots more. This is Clever Creature Season 2, dedicated always to my brave sister, Mary. The word of the day comes from Robert McFarlane, and that word is crown shyness. I'll define that one for you later. So this is the kind of audio journal, audio diary bit where I reflect on the word of the episode. The word is crown shyness, which I had never heard before. It came from the writer Robert McFarlane, who wrote the book Underland, which was one of my favorite books of recent memory. And it's essentially a phenomenon in nature where some trees grow apart at the top as if giving each other space to breathe. When I think about the word, where my mind immediately goes to is estrangement in families and the very particular kind of estrangement that happens in families, the uh, subtle and complicated ways that we avoid trying to become our parents or our siblings, you know, as much as we may admire them. And there may be some ways in which, many ways in which we try to emulate them. But a little bit like what the critic Harold Bloom famously called the anxiety of influence, where young writers adopt the voices, the written voices of their heroes, often unconsciously. They, they write like the people that they like to read. And then over time, in a sense, they have to overthrow them. They have to like kill that voice in themselves so that they can find their own voice. This anxiety of influence, this fear that you might become your heroes or, or your models. So crown shyness, <laughs> I think about it as that, that pulling back to get personal for a second. I think about it in the context of my relationship with my father he was coming from a scientific and a medical background and from a very kind of no-nonsense, pragmatic, rational background. And in many ways, at a very early age, definitely during adolescence and beyond, I started wrapping my identity around the arts and around the humanities and around big, squishy ideas that you can't quite put your finger on. And a lot of that was in response and in defiance and in a, a kind of <laughs> argument with my father. And so there's a, there was a crown shyness there that persists somewhat to this day, although I don't know whether trees do this, but in recent years, we've tentatively begun reaching tendrils out, some branches out 
and finding the places where, where we do overlap. This song is by Germ Bohr, a wonderful singer-songwriter and lyricist who I've known for many, many years. Thank you. 
This story is called From Suicide to Steinberg or Crown Shyness. And it's a long one, so just for your planning. They live less than 40 miles apart, the two professors. It might as well be 40 light years. How is it possible to approach the same questions from such completely different angles, such incompatible scientific frameworks, each equally convinced of the rightness of her approach and the wrongheadedness of that of her colleague and her greatest rival? Their experimental designs, their conclusions, even the way they talk, one in a clipped, no-nonsense staccato and the other in round, generous, literary multisyllables, are a kind of running argument, a series of sidewinding slaps to the face, assassination by a thousand cuts. Of the two, Dr. Dana Sussman is the better known, but only just, and only because she had a three-decade head start. From the 70s to the early 90s, she studied kids and television watching. At a time when the culture was hungry for conclusive evidence of what parents already believed, that their kids were rotting their brains out on Saturday morning cartoons and breakfast cereal ads, turning violent, antisocial, and stupid, Dana rocked the world of psychology by demonstrating exactly the opposite. TV, she showed, was actually pretty good for you. Longitudinal studies, the kind where you follow your subjects over decades, are rare because they're expensive and tough to execute. People drop out. Real life is full of hard-to-control-for variables like divorce and alcoholism. It's much easier to get a bunch of kids in the lab, show some of them a violent cartoon, than let them hang out for an hour afterwards. Being kids, they imitate what they see, and the ones who watch Roadrunner are more likely to whack the other ones on the head. But what does that tell you, really? That kids have an imagination? What happens an hour later, the next day at school? What happens when these kids grow up? Dana wanted to know, and she had a generous grant from a foundation that was quietly backed by a media company that was tired of all the negative press. Like any scientist, Dana had her beliefs, of course. Hypotheses have to come from somewhere, don't they? People aren't robots. And science, social science especially, is a product of the human imagination, not a blueprint of the mind of God or the hidden structure of the universe. She was driven by a hunch that the anti-TV frenzy sat at the crossroads of several strains of conservatism in American culture. There was a Luddite naturalism and suspicion of technology, a Christian fear of moral erosion, and, among her fellow psychologists, an elitist, bookish backlash against popular culture. And with all its brash, independent women, and in spite of all its cowering housewives, TV was also a manifest threat to the patriarchy, and the patriarchy didn't take threats lightly. TV phobia was like any frenzy. It blinded its victims to the fact that their own hatred, paranoia, and closed-mindedness was the real enemy. And like any good liberal humanist of her time, Dana believed in openness and personal freedom, and when it came to Pandora's boxes, she was willing to take the bad with the good. So from 1972 to 1992, she followed 60 kids from age 10 to age 30. 20 of them grew up in homes where the TV was always on. 20 had strict rules like no TV until your homework is done and nothing raunchy like Fantasy Island or The Benny Hill Show. And she somehow found 20 families without any TV at all. She even made sure that within each racial and socioeconomic group, the TV habits were varied to control for any cultural differences. As social psychology studies of the era went, Dana's was rock solid. Dana had a great mop of tangled hair. She wore batik print dresses and brass jewelry from a solo trip to India, and she laughed a lot when she spoke. Her colleagues, mostly men in turtlenecks with furrowed brows, underestimated her. They attacked her questionnaires, her data crunching, and of course the staggering number of real-world variables. 
One particularly passionate rival even uncovered the source of the grant money and anonymously leaked it to the press. But Dana was deadly serious about her science, meticulous in its design and execution. This battery of critical assaults failed to poke any holes big enough to sink her battleship. By the early 80s, compelling results had started to trickle in. By 1990, they were a raging flood. On every measure of openness, generosity, curiosity, and human decency, and even on most measures of intelligence, the more TV Dana's subjects watched, the better they did. The science couldn't tell her why this was the case, of course, but she had her opinions. She believed in an innate human tendency toward good, and that the more information it was exposed to, the more the brain had to work with. Sure, there was crap on TV, but the mind tended to keep what worked and filter the rest. And anyone who thought otherwise was probably a crypto-fascist trying to keep the rabble ignorant and docile. A good story is a good story, and the media knows where its bread is buttered, so Dana Sussman became a regular guest on every daytime talk show in America. Audiences loved her because she loved them. She was the permissive parent they'd never had. And she gave them the words they never had to talk back to their real parents. Switch it on was the title of her six-month-straight New York Times bestselling book, and it became a mantra in American households. Switch it on, parents crowed to their grateful children. Go ahead and switch it on. Nature, or nurture, or is it both, sometimes has a perverse sense of humor. Predictably enough, Dana raised her daughter Joan, born in 1976, named after Joni Mitchell, not Joan Didion, as Joan would later insist, preferring the latter's cool, uncompromising clarity, with unfettered access to TV, comic books, and sugary cereals like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. When she was 10, Joan discovered a crumbling copy of the Whole Earth Catalog at the library. The catalog was a cabinet of curiosities, stuffed with practical tips for independent, ethically-driven living. It saw science and cutting-edge technology, like Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome houses, as tools for reducing human suffering and our strain on the planet. Over the next two years, Joan checked out and devoured hundreds of books on do-it-yourself agriculture, conservation, and critical media theory. On her 12th birthday, she announced that she was a vegan, that she intended to grow all of her own food from now on, and that she would never for the rest of her life watch another second of television, except, of course, for the purpose of formal critical analysis. Then the arguments began. A bitter, vicious war of fundamental values, with Dana defending, as she saw it, a kind of empathetic pragmatism that forgave humanity its imperfections, and Joan defending, as she saw it, human progress. When Joan was 16, in a scene both of them would regret for the rest of their lives, Joan called her mother an idiot, Dana began choking her, and Joan threw her, tumbling backward, into a bookcase. That night, when her parents were asleep, Joan packed a bag and ran away to squat with some friends in a punk band in a row house in San Francisco. She changed her name to Joni Suicide, taking some satisfaction in the fact that although Dana would never know about it, it would have driven her crazy if she did. But suicide wasn't really Joni's style. While one after another, her friends dropped like flies from heroin overdoses or impulsively hit the road never to be seen again, she mostly kept to herself, reading in her room and devising whole-earth catalog-worthy solutions to the perpetual rat infestation in the basement of the squat. Eventually, she found her way to an alternative farming community in Salinas, which worked out okay for a while. But for all its pretensions to collectivism, the community was de facto run by a Rasputin-bearded philosophy PhD dropout named Marcus, who used words like responsibility and community to make everyone's life miserable, while apparently doing as little work as possible himself. Even with all the farm labor, Joan's reading had never stopped. 
nor had the battle with her mother, although they hadn't spoken once since she left home. There are many people who like to impress others by pretending that they need very little sleep, but Joan was the rare sort who really slept only four or five hours a night. Although she couldn't have told you where it was headed, she was driven by an intellectual curiosity that felt like a spiritual practice. The more she read, the more convinced she became that this path could eventually transform her into something impenetrable, something clear and uncompromising and certain, something, in other words, entirely unlike her mother. Everywhere she looked in those years, the great promise of the whole Earth catalog seemed to collide with the cynicism, the short-term self-serving thinking of business and government. In the Reagan 80s, Buckminster Fuller looked like a ridiculous fringe crank. How could enlightened planetary solutions to our problems ever succeed, Joan wondered, when even a 20-person commune turned into a petty dictatorship? But the human mind, consciousness, and the black box of the brain? Now there was a puzzle worth devoting a lifetime to. That's how Joan turned to psychology and devoured all the biggies, more or less, in order. Freud, Jung, Skinner... Piaget, Mary Ainsworth, all the way up to neuroscience, to the point where all that fuzzy mucking about in the unconscious, dream analysis, and so on, was starting to look a lot like witchcraft. Like medicine in the 1860s, when doctors started washing their hands, psychological science was clearly on the cusp of a revolution, one that would be driven by computer technology. Fuzzy-headed ideologues like Dana Sussman would soon be reduced to quaint little footnotes of history. Joan read her mother's work, of course, all of it. Every published paper, every popular book, she read through gritted teeth. Every other word enraged her, but she knew enough to recognize the rigor of the scholarship, or rather, the rigor of the appearance of scholarship. To Joan, her mother's whole career was nothing but an elaborate sham, plausible-sounding science in service of vague, unexamined ideas about open-mindedness. At best, it was self-delusion on Dana's part. At worst, self-serving hypocrisy. After all, her career had been funded by TV moguls and it had made her rich and famous. Forget about Joan's own ruined childhood. The more she read, the less she could shake her horror at the damage Dana had done and was continuing to do to American culture. She was a grinning enabler, encouraging the worst of our unexamined impulses. Even worse, even more repellent to everything that mattered to Joan was her mother's irreparable corruption of what counted in this country as science. Joan changed her name again from suicide to Steinberg. Early and exclusively, she quietly applied to Yale and got a full scholarship. Unlike most American undergrads, she arrived there with a clear sense of purpose. Let other idiots waste time finding themselves. Joan was laser-focused on the mind and the brain, and she was looking for concrete answers. In 1996, the year Joan started college, the internet was all anyone could talk about, and Dana Sussman's was one of the loudest voices around. Wherever Joan turned, she saw her mother's grinning face, read her Pollyanna-ish predictions about an unprecedented explosion in human connection and knowledge, and wanted to vomit. Like Gutenberg's printing press, Dana crowed, the internet would make information a public good on an unimaginable scale. A rice farmer in China would be able to teach herself computer programming or structural engineering. Our universal human hunger for knowledge would draw people together from every corner of the world to solve problems, melting cultural differences and putting an end to war. Being a public intellectual is a high-wire act. The media demanded this kind of breathless futurism from Dana. People's daily lives were depressing enough without science getting into their newspapers and making them feel guilty all the time. So anyone who dared to say, wow, the future is going to be great, tended to get a lot of positive attention. Media attention was what had won Joan her tenure at Berkeley. It funded her ongoing research. She never lied outright. 
Everything she told the camera or the microphone was a simplified version of what she had every reason to believe her studies would eventually reveal. Back in the lab, she became fascinated with text-based internet chat rooms. People all over the world were in them, at work, late at night, on the weekends, preferring the virtual company of strangers, even when a subject like origami was almost impossible to discuss without visual aids. What is connection? Dana asked her graduate students. What does this drive to connect reveal about our species? These questions eventually became a psychological instrument, a 159-question quiz designed to measure a person's sense of connectedness to humanity as a whole. Next came a pioneering study with astonishing results. The more isolated a person felt, Dana and her team found, the more the internet could transform their life for the better. Bullshit, Joan yelled, hurling the New York Times magazine at the wall of her dorm room, only to watch it flutter disappointingly to her feet. She had just read with disgust an article called Wired Together, the Internet, according to Sussman. Connection is not a measurable substance, Joan yelled at the inert glossy. These people are self-reporting in a study whose conclusions are foregone and transparent. Jeez, said her boyfriend, who would not be her boyfriend for much longer. Take a chill pill. What are you getting so worked up about? Joan stayed on at Yale toward her master's. Within the department, she became known and feared by some who saw her as a threat for her dispassionate clarity and intellectual rigor. A classmate who made the mistake of labeling her Joanbot 3000 behind her back sat there helpless one day in a thesis workshop as she calmly shredded four years of his research. Flawed premises, flawed data, flawed conclusions, she said in summation as he seemed to wither into the pattern of his tweed upholstered chair. Garbage in, garbage out. Unlike her mother, unlike herself back in high school even, Joan no longer saw technology through an ethical lens. It was a set of tools people could use for valuable, worthless, or neutral purposes. Technologies like TV or the internet didn't harm people. What harmed us was ignorance of their power. fMRI was invented in 1990. As close as psychology had gotten to a magic looking glass, it offered a window into the activity of consciousness. It promised to put an end, once and for all, to long centuries of groping about in the darkness, doing frontal lobotomies with an ice pick. At every opportunity, Joan spent time in the neuroscience lab and took courses in the new brain imaging tech. It was primitive, but it was the answer she'd been looking for, the hard evidence that would torpedo her mother's soft pseudoscience. To the extent that a doctoral thesis can take anything by storm, Jones did just that to the small world of academic psychology. It was called Next to Nothing, Neural Effects in Internet Chat Rooms. Using the latest, most robust fMRI imaging and analysis, it compared good old-fashioned face-to-face talk with internet chat. No matter the subject, no matter how heated the discussion might get, brains in chat rooms were pretty dim, on fMRI at least. They showed much less activity than brains inside bodies that were in the same physical space. Over time, face-to-face chat seemed to strengthen activity in certain areas, likely the neural basis for forming relationships. Internet chat didn't. You could talk to the same person online for hours a day, every day, without any lasting change. This was the scientific equivalent of a diss track in rap music. Everyone in the field knew Dana Sussman's research, and Joan's study, it really was hers, though her advisor had insisted on putting his name on it with the same sense of entitlement with which he tended to put his hands on female grad students, was a gauntlet thrown at the feet of Dana Sussman's monumental reputation. Surely it would have to be answered, wouldn't it? But battle wasn't really Dana's style. Spirited debate? Sure, when she had the time for it. A little collegial roughhousing in the grand tradition of science and democracy? But at the moment, she was busy, 
hard at work on her next book, Interconnected, How the World Wide Web Will Humanize Us Once and for All. Meanwhile, Joan was involved in a little futurism of her own. It was clear to her, though many of her colleagues couldn't see it yet, that neuroscience and cognitive science must merge. You could map fMRI activity onto what was known about the function of different brain areas, but it could only tell you so much about what was going on with the subject's consciousness. You could see the electricity, but you couldn't reliably translate it into thought. Joan wanted to compare this visual data with tests of memory and awareness. That was the missing link that would give her concrete answers to the many meaningful questions inside the big stupid question, what is the internet doing to us? As it happened, Stanford University was thinking along the exact same lines. Joan applied for a tenure-track position, making a bold proposal for a new interdisciplinary division in cognitive neuroscience. After that, the attacks on Dana Sussman's work came fast and furious. First, Joan and her team at Stanford asked why the connections made online, as represented by brain activity, rarely tended to progress beyond a certain point. They demonstrated that this was an effect of memory. Without visual cues and the rich, complex sound of the human voice, people just didn't make much of an impression on one another. Next, they showed that online interactions tended to overstimulate the amygdala, prompting fear responses that manifested as anger, avoidance, and biases that, when they led to any connection at all, did so mainly on the basis of shared negative affect. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. All of this made for very juicy tech news. Wired Magazine interviewed Joan for a cover story called The World Wide Wedge? Is the Internet Pushing Us Apart? Speaking to a wider public than ever before, Joan was careful to lower the temperature in the room. Brain science is still in its infancy, she told Wired's readers. Real science is often quite slow and boring, but it has one big advantage. It's real. It'll be half a century at least, she said, before we really understand what today's internet was doing to us. And by then, by today's standards, the online world would be unrecognizable. Don't look to today's science for parenting advice. Surprisingly, in the overheated world of tech media, Joan's pragmatism struck a nerve. Suddenly, she was being cited everywhere as the antidote to techno-hype, a refreshing voice of reason for the digital age. And more and more loudly, her work was trumpeted as a corrective to the romanticism of the last generation, most distinctly embodied by Dana Sussman, PhD. It was Dana's PR person, Carson, who came up with the idea. An internet-age meeting of minds, two gladiators of psychological science going head-to-head for the first time on a virtual stage. It was 2006, a year since the first video was uploaded to YouTube, and people were getting used to the fact that TV shows didn't have to be on TV. YouTube corporate was hungry for programming that would brand their platform as a destination for one-of-a-kind viewing, and Carson's idea fit this goal so perfectly that the company immediately agreed to produce it and publicize the hell out of it. Dana was up for it. All that was left was to convince Joan. For weeks, Carson's calls and emails went unanswered. So did those of YouTube's director of programming. Invitations to lunch at fine Bay Area dining establishments, even clumsy voice messages promising extremely generous compensation, went ignored. Joan was busy with her research, had no interest in this kind of media circus, and certainly didn't want to meet her mother for the first time in over a decade, just before debating her for the entire world to see. Or did she? Dull at first, and almost imperceptible, a perverse impulse began to take root in her. Why not, she wondered one morning on the way to a class. Why not humiliate the dangerous old fool once and for all? 
Google, which had just bought YouTube, understood digital marketing better than anyone. They had the data, trillions of searches revealing the habits and interests of individual users more precisely than any other tracked online behavior, and they knew how to use it. They called the forthcoming debate, This is your brain on the internet. Six weeks before launch, anyone who Googled brain, internet, media, and especially more granular queries like, is the internet good for you, started seeing tantalizing little ads for, quote, the intellectual battle of the century and, quote, the final internet smackdown. By the Saturday of the debate, to be taped at 8 a.m. and released at 10 a.m. Pacific time, there was no streaming yet, so this was as close to live as it got with internet video, tens of millions of eager viewers were primed and ready. Joan arrived late on purpose, just three minutes before shooting. A panicked, unpaid production assistant hustled her into the studio, where Dana was already sitting, facing her, across an austere, glossy, black slab of a table that, with her bangles, unkempt hair, and flowy batik dress, made her look like a sunflower that had suddenly materialized on the Kaaba in Mecca. Joni, she said, leaning across the slab. Joni, baby? A PA hushed her, trying to get levels on Joan's mic, and then the cameras were rolling. The moderator, Cody Lukacs, was a 20-something hipster with a popular channel called Dude, It's Science, on which ordinary scientific discoveries were presented as breathtaking evidence that we would all soon be traveling through time via wormholes. Hey everyone, Cody gushed, I am beyond psyched to be here today with two pioneers of the world of the mind, two mighty women at the forefront of their fields who have come to very different scientific conclusions about what the internet is doing to us. For over three decades, Dr. Dana Sussman has been revealing the power of media to create a more connected world. And since the birth of the internet, Dr. Joan Steinberg has been a voice crying in the wilderness, repent, repent, psych, but kinda not. In this time of unprecedented optimism and hope, she's a critical, skeptical voice with a cautionary tale of woe. Welcome to This Is Your Brain on the Internet. The two guests murmured their thanks, and Cody got down to business. Let's start with an easy one. Why can't you two just get along? Joan had come prepared for this kind of baiting. You know, Cody, it's not personal. Not at all. Dr. Sussman and I are just polar opposites, epistemologically speaking. You know, said Cody, for the benefit of the audience at home, epistemological, ontological, I can never get those two straight. I mean, said Joan, that we just fundamentally disagree about what constitutes good science. So you're calling Dr. Sussman's work bad science? Here Dana jumped in. Joni, can we just talk? Like human beings? Joan's face remained as impassive as Mount Rushmore. Cody, said Dana, I have to say something before we go any further. Joni is my daughter. This is the first time I've seen her face to face since she was 16 years old. A collective gasp arose from the studio audience. Cody made the face that had made him famous, the one that expressed total wonder and awe at the mysteries of the universe. See, said Joan, this is precisely my point. Dana Sussman is interested in feelings above all else, above facts, above reality, and, like all of us, she prefers the good feelings to the bad ones. That's human nature. But when you assume the mantle of science, when you design pseudoscientific instruments to confirm your rosy emotional view of the world, then that, conveniently enough, makes you beloved of millions and a darling of the media, which, surprise, surprise, is not immune to flattery. Well, frankly, that offends me. That offends me, as it should offend any rational thinker, to the core. Joni, said Dana, I love your work. I've kept an eye on it since you were an undergrad. 
since before I knew who you were. And then, when that Wired article came out and I saw your face on the cover, it was all I could do not to reach out to you, to respect your right to your own life. Many paths, one mountain, said Cody, nodding sagely. This doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, said Dana. What if we collaborate? Just imagine, your technology coupled with my understanding of social psychology, it could be a paradigm shift in the field. We are not in the same field, said Joan. Whoa, said Cody, with a conciliatory laugh. This is what happens when paradigms collide. I applaud the passion. What's science without passion? It's science, said Joan. Okay, said Cody, but I think Dr. Sussman has a point. Of course you do, muttered Joan. And, continued Cody, I'll bet the audience agrees with me. The healing of this family feud could have staggering implications for science and technology as we know them. The audience burst into applause, then bloomed into a standing ovation as the cameras crawled across it in slow-mo. Joan hung her head and waited for the cheering to subside. Listen, she said, when it finally did. I think this is being turned into something it's not. Let me explain. In my lab, we look directly at what the brain does when people are using different media. We try to connect this with how they think through testing and direct observation. In Dr. Sussman's lab, your mother's lab, said Cody. In Dr. Sussman's lab, continued Joan, they start with a wish. A wish, for example, that people would be more connected by technology. Then they prove that wish to be true. Joni, said Dana, that's a gross exaggeration and you know it. I might as well say that you begin your work with a wish to disprove my research. There are two sides to every story, said Cody. There are not, screamed Joan. There are not two sides to every goddamn story. God damn it! She stood, ripped her microphone off her lapel, and threw it to the ground. I throw the microphone, she yelled. It flies some distance through the air, then it falls to the ground because of gravity. Are there two sides to that story? Is it possible, for example, that fairies carried it for a bit and then quickly got bored? Well, at the quantum level, said Cody. Dana was crying now. Joni, honey, I love you. But Joan had left the studio. Out in the parking lot, it was raining violently from a cloud looming over the studio in spite of the otherwise dazzling blue sky. Dana got into her old Subaru and sat there crying with the engine running. There was knocking on the passenger side window. It was Joan, umbrella-less and bedraggled, her jaw tight and determined. Dana rolled down the window. Joni, come into the car. It's pouring. I just have one question, said Joan. Let's talk in the car. You're soaked. But Joan didn't move. Do you really believe it? Believe what, Joni? It. All of it. Your whole career. Do you believe it's science? Or is it all just a high-stakes hustle? I need to know. What do you think, Joni? I don't know! That's the point. I don't know. You're too smart not to see the flaws, the biases. But then, how could you? How could you keep it up for so long? How could you raise your own daughter according to that bullshit? It's been driving me crazy for 30 years. Oh, honey, said Dana. Of course I believe it. I'm not saying the science is perfect, but it's what we've got, and it's getting better all the time. We've got to live in the world somehow. People need advice and hope today, not three decades from now. Would you prefer horoscopes? Dana's phone rang. She fished for it in her purse. I've got to take this, she said. But Joan had vanished. Speeding down the highway, tears clouding her vision, Joan called the YouTube producer who was busy on the phone with Dana and didn't pick it up. 
This is Dr. Joan Steinberg, she said. I do not, I repeat, do not authorize you or YouTube or Google to release that interview under any circumstances. If you do, I will sue you all out of existence. Do you understand? Out of existence. But of course she had already signed a release. And of course she was in no position to sue anybody out of existence, let alone Google or YouTube. The interview quickly went as viral as anything could in those pre-social media days. Millions of people watched it. Millions shared it with friends and relatives in ever-expanding email chains. Saturday Night Live had a skit about it in which Joan was depicted as the Incredible Hulk, starting out mild-mannered and then turning green and muscle-bound, tearing the studio to shreds. The story, as everyone came to see it, was this. Dana Sussman was a warm-hearted humanist, an antidote to the unfeeling, bloodless strain in science. Psychology was a human science, after all, and Dr. Sussman was exactly what a psychologist should be, a caring human being. Joan, on the other hand, was a bitter, ungrateful daughter, more machine than human, whose entire career had been one drawn-out act of revenge. For months afterwards, Joan couldn't go to the drugstore without seeing her mom's face on a magazine cover. To my daughter, an impassioned plea, ran the Newsweek cover story. The difficult science of love, said the headline in Marie Claire. Joan bottled her fury and got back to work. If anything, the fallout from the interview sharpened her focus. Instead of directly attacking her mother's findings, her studies from now on would have to anticipate them. In this way, she would be the first in social media's infancy to recognize its tendency toward tribalism and its power as a propaganda tool. And from then on, Dana took the lead from her daughter, following her work with the loving attention of a biographer, responding to each of her findings with a study of her own. She disagreed with almost every conclusion Joan came to, but it felt almost like a dialogue, the only way she knew of staying in touch. For Joan, it was just the opposite. Every paper, every graph, a paving stone, the laying of a path to get as far away as possible. Before I introduce the guest, just a quick note to say that all of these conversations were recorded in the fall and winter of 2020, either just before or just after the U.S. presidential election and several months into the pandemic, in case any of those themes come up. I've lived in New York City off and on, mostly on, since I was 18 years old. I'm 48 now, and maybe five years ago, I suddenly became aware of a need or a lack that's been hiding in plain sight, in my body. A deep yearning for open spaces, trees, grass, mountains, ocean, sky. Among other things, this led to scuba certification for me and my wife, Demet, and a series of glorious otherworldly adventures among sharks, giant turtles, octopus, manta rays, and an infinitude of fish. New York is designed for efficiency. Many wonders exist here, and with some effort, it's possible to lose yourself among them. But it's also easy to live like a rat in a maze, rushing from place to place, goal to goal on an endless to-do list. But wild things and wild places, if you let them, can take your attention off of yourself or the limiting stories of yourself that daily life can generate. And it's only with your attention decentered in this way that you can let your guard down enough to be what you really are one wonder among many in the universe. My guest today is the poet and essayist, Amy Nezukumatato. Her most recent book, World of Wonders, in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments, 
drowns the reader in natural beauty that illuminates everything. It's a series of essays, each based on one animal or other natural phenomenon, like the axolotl, the vampire squid, a monsoon in India, or the bonnet macaque. Seen through Amy's eyes, the world becomes a teacher, not of fortune cookie wisdom, but of kick-ass dance moves, a million sly and creative ways of surviving and living joyfully. Welcome to Clever Creature, Amy. Hi there. Thanks, Jason. So good to be here with you. First, I would ask if, you know, there's anything in the introduction that stood out for you or that you want, might want to comment into? Yeah, you know, I was particularly struck by um, what you mentioned about how there, even in, even in a city, and maybe especially in a city like New York, there is so much wonder to behold, but you need to stop a little bit, you know, because it is so easy. Everything around you will be telling you to rush, 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 do this, do this, not look up. Um, just keep just your eye on the on the horizon and go, 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 go. And you are going to have to be one of the, you know, you're going to have to do a little bit of self-regulating. And that's frankly hard. It's hard for me. And I don't, I don't live in the city. So it is a very purposeful thing. But I think that highlights kind of the overall mood of my book is that it's there. I'm not a wizard, you know, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's there. That's the beauty of it. And it's just maybe my book, I hope, is just a reminder. I think we all know this. I'm not saying anything new that hasn't been said. I think in 2020, um, it's good to have a reminder like this. So that brings me to the first thing I want to talk about, which is sort of, yeah, your relationship with nature, how it started. You know, in your book, you talk about a lot of traveling, you moved from place to place a lot as a kid. There's different elements that, that seem to be important in terms of the way that you connect with nature. All of that travel, you know, sometimes being an outsider or a traveler between worlds just by virtue of all the traveling, by virtue of your parents coming from two different countries, and just having all of that available to you. And I thought also the fact that your parents are, first of all, they're both uh, healers. They're both in mm -hmm. healing professions mm -hmm. and they're both lovers of the natural world and grow growers of, of fruits and vegetables, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. They okay. have this amazing garden in, in central Florida. Yeah, you know, um, I think for me, and I, and I realize this is different for, for everybody, um, and I know that it's a somewhat privileged thing to be able to say, and I say privileged, you know, almost with an asterisk, you know, because it was really, my sons look at me now with almost pity, like, mom, you were outside with no toys, what? <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah, and I, you know, I know I must sound ancient to them when I say like, yeah, and I liked it that way, you know? Um, but it really was the outdoors for me because, you know, for example, I have friends who don't feel safe outside. But for me, and I'm, mm. I can only speak for myself, um, the outdoors was an absolute place of refuge for me. It was the place um, that I could consistently count on to not be, um, not be a place where I was othered. You know, people wouldn't ask me that dreaded question of what are you? You know, I could be kind of quiet and watch a whole soap opera of birds, you know, in the trees, you know, and that was drama enough for me, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And it was a, it was a steadying force because like you said, I moved a lot for as a kid, but no matter where I was, be it on the grounds of a mental institution or in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, my dad um, taught me how to 
you know, identified constellations since I was eight. So I could always see, and he gave me the names of plants. It wasn't just, oh, that's a mountain on the horizon. That's Camelback Mountain. Right. That's a catalpa tree. So these things became kind of like familiar friends in some way. Um, and then fast forward, you know, 40 plus years later, 30 plus years later, you know, um, when I moved to Mississippi and saw my old friend, the catalpa tree again, the the, the very tree that kind of kept me company when I was a 12 year old in Kansas. It, it's, it's just like being kind of surrounded by friends, non-judgmental friends. <laughs> <laughs> we, we talk a lot on this show and I think a lot about creativity and the creative process and, and nature is creative in so many ways. And that mm-hmm. comes, that comes across throughout the book. Um, but I think a lot while reading your book about how nature transforms us and mm-hmm. how it's transformed by us and you in your imagination are both learning from nature's creativity and like observing the creative solutions nature is coming to mm-hmm. and also transforming nature sort of through metaphor through association through echo whatever like you 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 know using it creatively to understand your own life. You know, again, this is, this is nothing new by any, by any means, but it's, I think, kind of like a gentle reminder, hopefully not pedantic at all, that, that we are all connected, you know, so it's not just like, oh, you know, a lot of the nature writing I read growing up was like, oh, I went to a, a pond and I, I felt at peace with the world, you know. Right. Um, and I always thought, though I loved it and I thought, you know, the writing itself was beautiful, there was always this detachment that I felt because, A, I just always was like, well, how are you doing this? Like, are you, are you super rich? Or And then it turns out, you know, for example, with Thoreau, good old Thoreau, his mom was doing his laundry, you know. <laughs> right, right, um, right. That was conveniently left out of his narratives, you know. <laughs> and, and and his wilderness was, you know, I don't know, you know, half a mile exactly, from civilization. Exactly, exactly. And so, I again, <laughs> I I think of that as a foundational text for me, and yet the stuff I was reading in the 80s and 90s did not feature anybody like me. So it was just this weird disconnect of like, hey, we're, this is supposed, nature is about as universal, you know, as free as possible. Like you just look outside, you don't need money. You don't need, you know, just, you force yourself to kind of pause and take in nature, let it be kind of a healing or a reset kind of place if you can. Mm-hmm. And yet, I didn't see Asian American people in nature. And it's a very strange thing to say, like growing up as a child of the 80s and, you know, even late 70s, uh, you just simply, there was just no Asian Americans outdoors. If you saw them on TVs or, or books, they were like, you know, on a computer or... Nature, naturalism, hiking, all of those things are such white spaces. It's so weird, right? So it, subliminally... It's, in the culture. I mean, yeah, in the yeah, culture. absolutely, absolutely. And, or at least that's how it's depicted. And it was not, that was not my truth at all. I mean, my parents are master gardeners. And when we would climb mountains, my dad would be able to pick out any animal, any rock, anything like that. So there was a wealth of knowledge that I saw my parents have that was never represented anywhere. So after a while, you start to internalize it like, maybe we shouldn't be out here. Maybe Asians need to stay in their lane or whatever, you know? I, I just wanted to make a place 
for myself in this genre that I love so much. I love reading about the outdoors when I can't be in the outdoors, especially during a time like now, you know, when we are indoors more than perhaps some of us want. And uh, my joke is that it's not 1955 anymore. It's 2020. So our outdoors should also reflect what our, um, what our country is like now. And, and that means letting it be more, let that embrace of the outdoors be represented by more than one type of person, you know, and that includes, you know, different kinds of abilities, sexualities, um, economic backgrounds. Let's show that nature is not just for a privileged white straight set because how dangerous is that mindset? Right. And that's, that's such a dangerous thing to perpetuate, you know, that, Oh, this is only reserved for X number of people or X kind of people, you know, um, when kids prove us wrong all the time on that, you just look at a, a group of kids outside and they are at their peak joy, I dare say, when they are outside, you know? Right. Something happens where it brings us more indoors, more internal, around junior high or something like that. And I just I just wanted to remind everybody it doesn't have to be that way. And it occurred to me while you were saying all that, that, um, you know, that it's another way of saying that nature is us. Our bodies are nature. And so the the idea to have the natural world associated only with certain bodies is another way of denying humanity to all those other bodies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was super purposeful, you know, and I think it makes some people uncomfortable to hear that. But how how else are you supposed to take it when literally there's not a seen in a movie that I can think of in the 80s where an Asian person was outside, not even like climbing a tree, but just outside, <laughs> you know, except for, you know, which when I came up with it, it was my students who reminded me of this. It's, it's actually mortifying. From 16 Candles, the character Long Duck Long. Oh, God. Right? I, re- like, I, re- so- I recently rewatched. I recently rewatched that movie and oh, was like, gosh, I had completely forgotten that character. Oh, my and- gosh, Jason. Yeah. Like, and imagine this is how messed up it was. I remember <laughs> when I saw that character, you know, it was uh, with a group of my uh, girlfriends. We all laughed, of course. He was that, you know, that character was the punchline. And I was like laughing too. And then that's the axolotl smile of like, wait, why is there a gong every time this character speaks? You know, I mean, he was just, it's the most cringeworthy thing. And yet that was lauded as the definitive teen movie. That's the teen experience. Like, what are you telling? What does that say to the Asian American kids who are watching that? Like, oh, you're the butt of a joke. If you dare be walking outside or if you dare express desire, you know, you're, you're the butt of the joke. My wife and I recently got nostalgic about old New York and watched Breakfast at Tiffany's oh, gosh. In, in which, in which there was another, and I, I think, yeah, there's another just absolutely horrific oh, Asian stereotype, yeah. the landlord. And I think it's telling that, I mean, it just says so much that, that I had completely so erased much. that character from my mind. I had no yep. idea. And I could barely watch them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it I, says I like so much, right. That was the movie that was like a classic, like just, um, you know, the focus, of course, on Audrey as, as the epitome of feminine beauty. And yet, what does that say that one of the side characters was mortifyingly grotesque, you know? <laughs> grotesque, and, yeah. And, uh, and that's, it's uncomfortable to say, but that was very purposeful. You know, people don't like to say that, that was purposeful. And of course. so, yeah, so it, 
there's a lot of, und- the, and things have gotten a lot better in depiction. I mean, my kids grew up with Dora the Explorer, for example, and just the tail end of Doc McStuffins. That's how it should have been from the beginning. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just to say that this should not be groundbreaking um, to put an Asian American woman just outside, you know? Yeah, that leads me to, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about how you choose to write about race and racism in the context of this book at this time when communication so easily breaks down on these topics and when there is so much legitimate anger, but also just so much disconnect out there. And specifically, I think the axolotl smile is a nice, you know, um, a nice, uh, that, that, that essay is a nice way to, to enter Mm -hmm. into this. Yeah, you know, it's tough because I never sit down, you know, at the desk to say, today I will write about racism. And the few times that I had like kind of a plan, the wheels just come off because that's just not how I operate. Now, some people can do that and I bow down to them. And I I think that's amazing because you can actually have a plan, (laughs) you know, for that one. I, I don't know what my plan was, but I wanted I always start with kind of just like questions of like, what is it about? And for that one. So that's how I know it's going to be an essay rather than a poem. I had to take questions that I couldn't fit into a poem. And I'm not saying I even answer the question necessarily in my essays, but I like kind of dancing around it and finding other questions to encounter, you know, that kind of thing. And for the axolotl, my question is, why am I so entranced with this smile? So those of you who are listening who don't know, an axolotl is my favorite amphibian. There's three types of colors, but their mouth, I'm completely anthropomorphic anthropomorphizing and I don't care but its mouth turns upward so it looks like it has a smile even if its arms are being cut off or parts of its body are being cut off because it has these kind of amazing you know scientists look at the axolotl for its regenerative properties on helping build scar tissue for for other animals and it's also a symbol of resilience as well yes so the axolotl's arms always grow back everything grows back so so i don't want to make it seem like oh what are they doing to this axolotl so everything <laughs> grows back that's the second part of it and um just i feel a little guilty saying this because this is only my fourth year here living in the south but there's a southern saying you know you catch more flies with honey mm. and i could have had a lot more direct and kind of super difficult questions and kind of holding up the mirror to a lot of my white friends um people that i love friends that i have i married a white guy from kansas so we have extended friends and family that would have been a t- completely different book and there are other books that do that and Thank goodness, you know, they do. But I wanted to not ignore that because I did find a lack of those topics in nature writing alarming, you know. Um, So I wanted to include the moments when I witnessed my parents, you know, being talked down to. And again, I I think of them as the smartest people in the universe. But as a 12-year-old, I didn't have the vocabulary. I just could narrow my eyes and be like, why are you talking to my mom like that, you know? And with the axolotl in particular, I wanted to kind of showcase maybe more of a roundabout way of saying, look how icky this is. You might think you're you're jokey jokey, but when you see someone who looks different than you and you put your hands together and say namaste. <laughs> Specifically someone on your tenure committee at, yes, exactly. at the university. Yes, exactly. power over your career. And is educated and is a colleague. And- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, no. It's It becomes tiresome, <laughs> frankly. And it's just tiresome when you have a lifetime 
of having to kind of do this fake smile and be told by your very well-meaning, blue-leaning friends who would absolutely say, no, 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 I'm not racist at all. I didn't mean that at all. I'm telling you that we could all, and that includes me, examine ourselves a little bit more to be not just not flat out racist, but to be anti-racist, to not other people, to not make others feel small because of the way they look or because their skin color is different. It's such a basic, basic thing. But, you know, now if I were to tell a friend, hey, don't say that to me, you're racist, they would be immediately defensive. So I think hopefully... Couching it in metaphor, couching it with other animals as a vehicle to kind of examine their own actions with their own interactions, hopefully that is effective in a different way, you know? Yeah, and I should say for the listeners that, you know, in the essay, you talk about using the axolotl smile when a white girlfriend or friend says that, you know, a certain shade of lipstick is wrong for your skin, or in the case of the colleague saying namaste, sort of meeting them with the axolotl smile, which is like a kind of, um, I guess, Mona Lisa smile in a way. Um, Yeah, yeah. A little bit... um, Teflon or something like. Mm-hmm. And my hope too is that that's not okay. Like having you know forty years of having that forced smile is not okay. You know? Right. So right. one could argue actually um, a terrific reader in, in a book club said actually like this book is an answer to having to have that smile for you know since I was four years old. There's pictures of me with that smile, and I can remember just based on the picture and the scenario whatever situation I was in with my white like preschool classmates or a white teacher, something happened at a zoo field trip or something where my smile is, I could tell like when I am genuinely ebullient <laughs> and, and cheerful and when I'm just trying to get through the next hour <laughs> because of some white nonsense, you know, in some ways. Armor, yeah, yeah, armor, mask. Armor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's a, rand- it's a, it's a different way of saying, you know, just to everybody and that, and that includes me to examine our interactions with people that are different than us, you know? I mean, I'm thinking a lot about this lately, and I don't I don't want to spend all of our time, you know, sure. on, on race and racism because there's so much more going on in your work. But mm-hmm. but I, I've been thinking a lot about this. There was an article in the New York Times recently, and um, I'm actually ashamed that I don't remember the professor's name, but I believe she's at Smith College, hmm. who has been a social justice warrior, you know, in the black community for ever has worked with recovering Nazis and, oh, you know, wow. done done kind of like crazy outreach work yeah. across lines of racism hmm. and who is teaching and talking to her students about calling in rather than calling out, just kind mm. of trying to go against. When you're speaking, I can see that you're, you know, you're deliberately honoring the people who are trying to come directly at racism, you know, yeah. uh, you know, um, sometimes in ways that might be uh, angry or harsh or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, just because it needs to be confronted. Yeah, yeah. But I've been thinking a lot about this, and obviously I'm not the one, in a sense, to make this decision because as a white hetero male, I uh, unexamined bias and racism that I'm, like, just trying to see. Um, but... Like I've been thinking a lot about communication and how we talk about this stuff and how we how we transform people. And I, I'm familiar with the idea that it's not the f- responsibility of people of color to transform white people and so on and so forth. But I also believe that there must be growth forward. It must be about yeah. connection. It must be about communication. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think about I think about your approach in that context, not to like diss or attack anyone that's coming at it differently, but that yeah, yeah. that we need more creativity in the way that we do this transformative work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's, you know, it's hard because there are definitely days where um, uh, even just looking at my book, my book's been out just since September and there's times where I'm like, oh, I should have gone harder. You know, I sh- I'm, a- I'm so, you know, open the news any given day and I'm filled with rage, you know. Um, and yeah. ultimately, ultimately I want this book to, it starts with love and I wanted it to end with love. And there are many good places, um, and right, rightly so, um, places for rage and anger. And maybe that's another book, you know. Um, but, <laughs> okay. but for right now, and, it, and I'm not at all saying that my way is the best way by any means. I came to this project every day. I didn't know what I was going to write about, but I wanted it to be love being the overarching thing. So so thank you so much for for kind of picking up on that and and it's hard because there's there's a part of me too that that says like you can't both what about you can't both sides this or anything like that and I don't think that's what this book is doing but or there's no there's no meeting anybody halfway right now we've done that you know and I get that I get that that's legit but I just I just wanted to try love <laughs> I wanted to try love I keep hearing that thing about there's no meeting anyone halfway and I completely completely understand where that impulse is coming from yeah. but I feel like the logical conclusion of that has to be secession civil war yes. like I don't see so good some folks are ready for that I suppose yeah, yeah. you know Absolutely absolutely and maybe that's I don't know. It, you know, again depending on how nihilistic I feel each day when I look at the the news <laughs> Um, it seems like some days we're headed that way more than others, but this book, I just, the thing that was calling to me every day to get to the page was to make this be, you know, a love song to the planet and for my sons. So trust me when I say my friends know this, I have plenty of rage and plenty of disgust and no tolerance for in other ways that I could be better in. But yeah, I, I tried to kind of, fo- that was one way I could focus, focus the, the, the plants and animals in this book. Um, is that could I say love was the final arrow through this book, and that and yes, I I can say that. One thing I noticed, or you know, that caught my eye is this kind of dance between the natural and the artificial. There there was one mm. um, image that really stuck out for me, which was of the cactus wren. Uh, like you imagined the cactus wren grabbing the pink, sh- I don't know if you saw this or you imagined it, but I think you imagined it, grabbing the pink shoelace, neon pink shoelace of a roller skate that you once saw abandoned in a parking lot in Phoenix mm-hmm. and flying it back to its nest inside a saguaro cactus. Yeah, yeah. And that that idea like of everything about that, oh, and flying over silver swimming pools. Mm-hmm. And so everything about that, like you t- transcendent beauty in swimming pools, which are, you know, in a sense, a symbol of just, I don't know, luxury and privilege and mm-hmm. kind of American consumer waste, in a sense. The wren having the creativity to make use of, of, of what it finds. And then you, in your imagination, transforming that lace, you know, putting it into that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, you know, you talk about uh, glass beads and colorful glass beads that I believe your grandmother, was it, gave to you um, as a child? Ba- bangles, like bracelets? Bangles, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That yeah, your grandma- yeah. 
and the jelly braced, colorful jelly bracelets <laughs> that I had as well in the eighties, uh, okay, okay. Madonna, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's not really a question, but I, I guess I want to start there and. Kind yeah, of... I want. Thank you so much for putting that up, and I feel in some ways, um, and I'm so glad that you picked up on it. It's kind of a wink to kind of our generation of. Of people, because I, you know, I never saw things like jelly bracelets or a pop band like Duran Duran in a nature book. You know what I mean? And I, that's, it was very purposeful for me to put that stuff in there. I did happen to see. I did. I don't know if that cactus wren brought the shoelace exactly to the nest, but I did see it pick up uh, a lace in a in an, an abandoned parking lot, and that's just an image that stays with me. You know, um, especially when you move away to a place like Western New York, where there were no cactus runs anymore, and you start missing your old friend and wondering about. That or at least me, I was wondering about what happened to all those wrens. I hope they're doing okay, you know. Um, anyway, but yeah, I very much wanted it to be. I think maybe this is a direct um, reaction again to our old buddy Thoreau, where I wanted to include things that I. It would be so false of me. I could have left all that out, but it would have been so false. And any of some of my close readers are not writers at all, but they would have read this and been like. Amy, come on now. You were the biggest Madonna fan in 1984. <laughs> How is that not even mentioned when you're writing about 1984? You know what I mean? And and that kind of thing. So it was very purposeful to include um, songs. You know, I put the Macarena in there from the 90s. And, and I wanted to show in some ways, it was just me. If, you know, this is memoir. This is not poetry. So this is this is writing about my life, and that is who I was. I, I contained multitudes, so I could absolutely identify most of the constellations in the sky, but also I could give you the catalog of Madonna from 1983 to 1989 easily, you know. Well, um, and, and I think I think there's less disconnect there than we might think, right? I mean, those yeah. are, those colorful things, you know, I remember Absolutely. with delight my um, three-toned fluorescent vans, high oh, tops, yes. you know. And, and, fluorescent um, colors, yeah, yeah that's just, and, that was the 80s, of, of the, you know. And, and that high exuberant artifice, like, those are our adornments too, you know. It's yeah. like putting something colorful in, in your nest. Or being showy to attract a mate, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I remember roller skating night, everybody was in just decked out in, I mean, it was... Now, my sons would look at it and be like, oh, why were you in costume? But that was like our regular attire for a roller skating night, you know what I mean? A Friday. I used to dress yeah. in Michael Jackson, uh, <laughs> oh I, what you might call Michael Jackson drag to go to the ro- roller rink. Oh my goodness. All the fifth grade boys, I remember they would save up to buy like the red coat or something. Yeah. And it was like pleather. It was plastic essentially because nobody could afford the real deal, you know, and. Um, and they were all white, you know, so it's, it's, it's really, I look back on that time with such fondness and it would have been disingenuous of me to leave that stuff out. And I'm so glad I, um, I did, you know, one of the kind of the fun nerdy things is running this through a copy editor and, and and just knowing, you know, she, bless her heart. She had so many questions of like, is Duran Duran one word? Is this, you know, <laughs> and making the, you know, and, the, and then on the other hand, they also had to look up, you know, Latin names of the comb jellyfish, you know. Um, so I, <laughs> the copy editors for this book uh, got a full workout of just basically pop culture from the 80s and the natural world. And and they said they, they had the best time doing it, you know. Uh, 
And you know, the other thing too is that on one hand, it's a little, it's a little bit of a, th- the, I don't know, thumbing, putting thumbs up, it seems a little too harsh, but for all the nature books that I read of like filling a pipe and smoking off, looking into the wilderness or, you know, whatever manly activities that were going on in these books, I wanted to include my own, you know, my own kind of life in there as well. And and that's not an Asian thing. That's not, a, it was just a kid yeah. in the 80s thing. I mean, I, I spoke earlier, or I spoke on a different episode in this season with a, a guy who's been a Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition for mm. 45 years. Mm-hmm. And their tradition is all about going out into into nature, you know, mm. to, from oh, distract, wow. distractions from the city and meditating in nature. Mm-hmm. And, but he, maybe he's unusual among 45-year veteran monks, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but he's he made the point that there's actually nothing un, unnatural, that if we are natural mm. creatures, yeah, you know, yeah. everything we make is natural. And like, mm-hmm. so even these, you know, and that, that of course lends us and gets us into some like squirrely territory. Like when I think about my 12 year old son and the online worlds that he likes to inhabit mm. and, the, and the discomfort that I have around that, that possibly yeah. you might share mm-hmm. given how mm-hmm. the uh, benefits that we might feel they would have in just being outside and Absolutely. playing. Yeah, and yeah. yet, and yet he's immersed in these worlds, which are created by humans, which are products of nature and which delight him and mm. feed him in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't know how you think about that. It's so tough. And I think we'd be having a different conversation if we were in a pandemic, because among my friends, I'm famous for, I'm not anti-screen, but my, my boy, I have a 10 year old and a 13 year old, and they're famous for telling me how they have the least amount of screen time allowed compared to the entire fifth grade class, or they're the only ones without a phone or we we gave in and, and let our 13-year-old have a phone that just this year during the pandemic, you know, to keep in touch with his friends and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's tough because I also know that it, I, you know, I mean, I also, I, I watched cartoons for hours and yet I also, though nobody had to ever tell me to go outside. And I don't have to tell my kids to go outside, but I know that if I were to make, I, it's a, it's a dangerous thing for me and it's no judgment to anybody else because everybody has to deal with, you know, parenting during a pandemic, but it does bring me discomfort to know that my kids, if given the chance, and they have not been given the chance, they would just as soon sit in front of a t- uh, video game for five hours. And they could, they could, in their defense, they could also be happy to be outside for five hours. So right now I'm just like, uh, my main thing, I want them to be happy and feeling good. And for, for our family, what makes us feel good is when we are outdoors all together or when they are just kicking a ball around. But it is so hard. Um, I think I would have a different answer if I had one kid for sure. And I also would have a different answer if my husband wasn't home with me, Um, you know, um, we both teach. So but we've been teaching all at home. So it's tricky. I think the one thing that has been helpful for not just my family, but for for others, especially after reading this book, is that. You know, I don't give any prescriptions in this book. Like, you must do this for X right. number of hours or you're a failure as a family or you're a failure as a as a human or anything like that. It's just like, hey, it, it does, it can anyway, feel really good to get yourself outside. 
and unplug. No headphones, no yeah. no phones. And for me, that means not taking pictures of everything. I want to kind of record things now because I have the technology. And sometimes it's good, just good to take in birds with no technology with you, you know? And That's right. If you could at least not eliminate that from your life, because I know that there's people who just simply don't do that, period. Maybe as a reminder, just as a reminder, not as a, you should do this, you know? Well, it's probably worth, it's probably worth noting, like now that I'm reflecting on my own, like whatever sort of devil's advocating for what Ajahn Amaro, the monk said, mm. you know, that actually a lot of the artificial environments that we put ourselves into, which, you know, are yes, in one sense, natural because humans made them and we mm-hmm. are natural creatures, are nonetheless mediated heavily by culture, by capitalism, mm. yeah, by yeah. the kinds of, you know, I mean, video games are, you know, are based on a kind of like addictive goal setting, yeah. you know, structure of productivity and growth, um, you know, getting to the next level, et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm, you know, as I try to think about what, you know, what are the benefits of unplugging from that? Yeah. That's, that's the benefit is escaping that for a while. It's not that you can't be curious while you're playing a video game, but I find that, you know, mm-hmm. Having that sense of wonderment, which to me is like being curious about something and wanting to know more and then having a little bit of delight too. So Mm. I think it's more likely to happen when you're outside, I think, than it is staring at a screen, you know? And again, there's there's exceptions for sure. I don't want video game people to write in and say, no, no, that's terrible. Uh, I'm just saying like, just, oh, did you, you know, have you watched a monarch caterpillar crunch leaves you know did you have you seen what it looks like when they are shaking themselves into a chrysalis Uh, my hope is that you wonder a little bit more and that i want to follow up on that on that idea of of wonder and and what you know you know because what's available in the natural world is uh, the outside world is an infinite variety of surprise and possibility which can't cannot exist in an artificial world absolutely which is artificially constrained and specifically you have this beautiful quote which i'm sure everyone is quoting back at you in interviews it is this way with wonder it takes a bit of patience and it takes putting yourself in the right place at the right time i placed that there because i i wanted to kind of disabuse the notion of you just wake up one day. I think, you know, a lot of times my students are like that too, like, um, Professor Nazuka Mentato, I just, I just don't have wonder, you know, my nature writing students. I'm not really, that's not how I am, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, it's a practice. It's a practice for sure. Mm. Now, some obviously come to it easier than others. And depending on your background and what has happened to you as a child, you know, that's, that, those are all factors to be considered, but it is a practice. And if anything that 2020 has taught me is that I'm so glad I've had that kind of practice before the pandemic. Mm. So that on the days where there was, you know, I think of those days and those bleak days in March where all I wanted to do is just lay, I, you know, I'm still teaching, but all I wanted to do is lay in bed with a weighted blanket over my head and just not just like not listen to the news whatsoever and that's not possible (laughs) you have two kids and a dog and a husband and but what you can do is to make it a point to put yourself in a place where you can daydream where you can be curious about something, ask questions about something that you didn't know yesterday. And for me, that's about, that's in the natural world where that almost always happens. There are some days where I'm outside. Okay, this is great. I have too much stress going on. I can't completely 
unclench, you know, yeah. for sure. And that's valid. And my goodness, we're in a pandemic. And I think that's important. Every time I do an interview, I make sure to say, like, it is okay if you are not feeling very creative. Like, we are in a pandemic. So this is not going to be how you're feeling now is going to be different even four, four months from now, four years from now. But if you can have access to a window and teach yourself the names of, you know, there's like 12 different clouds. If you can teach yourself the name of three clouds, that's something you can do in a pandemic. You know, you don't need to have money. You don't need to have, I guess, maybe an internet access or a good book, I guess, (laughs) that will teach you about the clouds. But Well, there are libraries. Yeah, there's libraries. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But that's something that you can do to find something, to learn something about the planet that you didn't know yesterday, you know, and just make yourself be open to that, be receptive to that. I feel like when you are in that practice, you'll notice things more. You'll, you don't have to search as much. The practice is not going to be as hard because you're, you're kind of tuned into doing that already. It becomes kind of second nature. So I've had a head start because I had parents who were doing that basically every day and they were never saying like, Amy, we're going to sit now and, and learn about wonder. That's just how they lived. But what I'm trying to say is that it's never too late. You can start literally today and just get yourself 20 minutes, 15 minutes where you're just, what do you wonder about? What do you Mm. wonder about? Every kid, you never have to teach a kid how to wonder because most of their first few kind of sentences is, look, daddy, look, look, look at this, look at the moon, look at this tree. So what can you wonder about? What do you want to exclaim with jubilation? Like, look at that tree shaped like Florida or whatever, you know? Um, Yeah. What can you do to bring back a little bit of that childhood curiosity? Again, it doesn't have to be huge. Just, just what do you wonder about? I think it's so worth it. I mean, it, you know, the somewhat cheeky, but I think correct analogy to like a couple that's been together for a long time and the the spark (laughs) went out of the romance and then they have to, yeah, you know, yeah. somewhat embarrassingly try some games or whatever to, to <laughs> yeah. try, try, try to find it again. I mean, yeah. I think, I think that's legit because it's like what lies on the other side of that, the intimacy, the connection Absolutely, is Absolutely. worth it. Is yeah. Worth it. Yeah. And the thing is, we all, <laughs> we all did this as kids, you know, so I know you could do it. Even the most jaded, you know, student with his hat pedaled down is like, no, no, no. He hadn't had that practice, and he also wasn't surrounded by people who actually appreciated that practice either. So one of my great, great delights is to, you know, take my students, well, pre-pandemic, on a tree walk, you know, and, and, and kind of give them names, give them names to these trees that they pass by every day on the way to campus so that Mm. they could say, oh, that, that's not just big tree, that's catalpa, you know, Um, or that is Osage orange, you know, that kind of thing. And I think... It's ex- extended to everything. You know, once you get to know the names of things, you feel a more tenderness to, to that, you know, so that it's not just, oh, birds over there, but, oh, those are those are painted buntings, you know. Um, it's really just attention. It's, it's just attention. It's just attention. And you can go all the way up to humans that once you know the names for things or get to know someone who's different than you, it makes them less, it makes you, I think, not want to do violence on them, you know, or to hurt them because they're not just this nameless culture or nameless group of people on the other side of the planet that you could just destroy. They're, oh, someone there has a book given to them by their mother and it's a book of 
favorite uh, fish or I don't know. And that, and that boy sleeps with it under his pillow. Like, how could you want to bomb that house when you get to know that there's families who read too? You know, I mean, that, it sounds so ridiculous and so basic and these are not groundbreaking things, but there's leaders in our government that want us to be afraid of things and not give names to things and to not put a human story behind certain things. So it is easy to distrust. It's easy to fear and it's easy to feel anger. But really, it's actually once you have that practice of noticing and getting to know things about the planet and then people, I think people will have less of a, you know, Rachel Carson said it, you'll have less appetite for destruction. This, again, I mean, it's a it's a fucking endless loop in some ways, but what you were saying about dehumanization and about rehumanization, obviously I'm skirting dangerously close in what I'm about to say to the error of there are good people on both sides, mm-hmm. right? But when I look at this country and I look at, you know, the vast millions and millions of people who voted for including an African-American doorman in our building (laughs) in New York, who I arguably racistly assumed was a Biden supporter. And like, Mm. because I had a good report, I have a good report with this guy. And so I was like walking out the door door one day and I was like, yeah, we're going to vote, go vote that guy out of office, you know, whatever. And he was like, you sure? Really? I mean, and then we ended up in a big, long conversation. And I'm not religious, but like, Every single one of them is a child of the universe. Every single one of them looked Mm -hmm. once with wonder upon a firefly. Like there has to be, obviously some people are never going to change, but there got to be a lot of people that, that might. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to have faith. I think having, having faith in the goodness of people does not mean being a doormat. I want to get that straight. It does not mean, and I, you know, and I'm a Capricorn at heart, so I remember every slate (laughs) that has happened to me. Um, But I don't know if I can get out of bed if I'm just assuming the worst in in people. Because there are days where it just feels like everybody's, you know, the people that are in charge, the people that we've put in government are going to be... just doing terribly destructive things. Why bother doing anything, you know? And I can't, I can't do that. Yeah, how can, I have to how believe can we live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to believe that people will remember our shared humanity. I have to believe that people eventually will do that. And I know, I absolutely, I am not a Pollyanna. I know that there are some people that are just beyond reach. And there's some people I frankly don't want to reach because they scare me. And they, I would put myself at risk by trying to, you know, even just have a conversation with them or be alone in a parking lot at night with them, you know, that kind of thing. And yet, and yet I still, I still want to believe that people can understand the concept of love because when I first worked with kids, it was when I was single and had no really desire to have kids. I was in grad school, you know, but one thing that working with kids taught me, they taught me many, many things, but it's just how much love kids have. Mm. Hate is taught. Love is the default. Love is the default. And I, you cannot tell me different. I've worked with kids all over the planet. Love is truly the the default. 100%. So I think people forget that. And, you know, um, and I say this sheepishly because it was a learning moment for me. And here I'm, I just say all of that. And it took my at the time, eight-year-old to point this out to me. 
my husband and I were speaking in hushed tones about Donald Trump. And this is during the, the first campaign of build that wall and build that wall. And we had seen videos of kids chanting that on TV to their Mexican and American classmates. And, you know, I mean, I think some not flattering words came out of my mouth while we were discussing this. And it was my eight-year-old who, who actually asked mommy, does Donald Trump, and it was totally, he would, you know, there's not an ounce of snark in his body. He was like, mommy, does Donald Trump have any friends? Hmm. And my husband and I looked at each other and don't get me wrong. I loathe the man. <laughs> I loathe the man. And it's, but it gave me such pause and a humbleness because my child, and he's not extraordinary. This is the default of kids. I'm telling you is love is, was concerned. Like, gosh, if he, and you know, my husband and I looked at each other and said, you know what, honey, I think he might be the first president who doesn't have friends that we've ever seen. And isn't that, you know, you think of like any of the Bushes, they had buddies from college that they would hang out and genuinely, right. like nobody had to pay them to hang out with friends. Like they genuinely had friends and family who loved on them and it stopped me in my tracks. Doesn't have a dog. You yeah. know, not that everyone has to have a dog, <laughs> no, no. but it seems... But is there anybody in his life that is showing him genuine affection? And don't get me wrong, like probably there's a good reason for that, but it did stop me in my tracks that my eight-year-old was able to perceive what no pundit at that point had ever seen or observed. And that is the simple truth of, it is quite clear based on what limited stuff my child has seen that this is a grown man who simply does not have a single friend. And this is the result. And I'm not saying we need to feel sorry for him or anything, but it it shows like the default is love. And I think that's and right. again, like who knows what happened? You know, I know there's plenty of people yeah. who had terrible childhoods and stuff, but they had friends. <laughs> they had friends at some point. You know, they had a friend who helped get them out of a, a terrible relationship with their dad or whatever, or someone that they can confide in and vice versa. I don't know. I don't, I'm not in a the psychologist. Of, yeah, in the absence of love and connection, you're left like solely with competition. Not yeah. that competition is inherently always evil, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but without love, it. But nobody to genuinely tell you, hey, you know, this is not a good look. You should maybe, you know, any anything like that. And so it's a two way street. Obviously, like obviously, this man has done stuff to push people away. Like, I'm not at all saying nobody has reached out to him. I'm sure that he had every opportunity to have genuine friends and genuine affection. Right. Um, but this is the first, like, person on the on television, uh, on the news, that my child can see is, like, a direct result of not having anyone who genuinely seems to care for this man. And, and what a result. So, Maybe if he could have like a Ebenezer Scrooge yeah, evening, yes. that, that might oh be helpful. Oh my gosh, like, that would be like <laughs> the greatest thing, right? You know, and, and I have to believe that. Again, at one point, right? At one point, it's like what you said. Donald Trump was a child looking for approval from somebody or something, and something happened to him. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not apologizing for this man whatsoever. I'm just simply pointing out that I get all the reasons that we should emphatically insist on not being Pollyannas and not being doormats and everything, Mm -hmm. but that those who believe in love and transformation and the possibility or the hope for any change over time for the vast majority of humanity for Mm -hmm. the better, like, ought to fiercely defend that too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I think so. And it's hard. Believe me, it's hard. (laughs) I feel like maybe in some ways, like after this, I feel like I need to take a shower in some ways. But it's the, it's not me just being a softie. It's not me just being a doormat. It's that that's us being human again is our default should be love. And you could see so many problems where that's not, that's not the case. You know, I mean, there's so many results of where that, the, you know, shutting the door on any possible transformation, you see the results of that, you know, um, imprisonment with no chance to reform whatsoever. And what you so often see, at least in history, is the, mm-hmm. the people on the, on the quote unquote good side turning terrible. You know, yeah. like becoming yeah. dictators themselves. And Absolutely. so that, that's that's the fear. That's the thing to be avoided mm-hmm. while we're trying to change for the better, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is just, it's, and again, I'm not going to solve it. Not going to solve everything, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, by yeah. going outside. That's not at all the message. I'm saying, can we at least turn towards tenderness? Can we turn towards tenderness instead of turn towards, oh, we, I don't have anything in common. Let me turn away. You know, can we just turn towards each other? The very last thing is um, we, there's a word of the episode that oh, I, yeah. I, I really want to talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Um, this was given to me by Robert McFarlane, who uh, is who I think of as a natural philosopher. He wrote the book Underland, and you actually have on your coffee table right now <laughs> yes. the lost the lost, lost spells. spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word is crown shyness, which he described as the social distancing of the natural world. And I've got a definition of it here. Crown shyness is a phenomenon observed in some tree species. It's also called canopy disengagement, um, uh, in which the crowns of fully stocked trees do not touch each other, forming a canopy with channel-like gaps. Mm. The phenomenon is most prevalent among trees of the same species, but also occurs between trees of different species. And, you know, there's lots of hypotheses. And I actually have a picture here from Wikipedia that I can show you of what what it looks like through the canopy when there is is crown shyness. Oh, my goodness. So beautiful. As a... Haunting. Poet and lover of the natural world and in terms of everything we've been talking about, whatever comes up for you about... Yeah, you know, well, now immediately it makes me want to just like log off and read everything I can about about this because I did not know this term. And what did um, what did it say? Like, is the cause of it? Um, So there's different theories and they don't actually know many hypotheses as to why it's adaptive. It might inhibit spread of leaf eating insect larvae. Mm. Or that the interdigitation of canopy branches leads to reciprocal pruning of adjacent trees. So they're like trimming each other in a way. I don't know. Mm. They don't know. Interesting, interesting. But they call it like a survival technique? I mean, I I think naturalists assume that any repeated behavior is adaptive evolutionarily Mm -hmm. somehow, even if we don't know why. So interesting, so interesting because I could see it kind of depending on my mood, you know, on the one hand, I could see, look at the trees um, making way for each other to grow and to thrive and to, um, in, and in separating themselves, they're supporting each other, you know, for sure. That's the first thing that comes in my mind, like, except like giving each other space supports them, lets them shine through, you know, lets them grow. On the other hand, there's something so, there's also something so haunting about having that separation because I'm thinking of, 
you know, birds and lizards or monkeys, if this is in a tropical situation, you know, you, depending on those crisscrossed branches as highways um, of like right. a monkey highway, you know, and, and why the trees are wanting to separate that. Maybe it's to give, maybe, maybe it's an adaptive way again, too, like to make sure that the monkeys get their cardio in by jumping, you know, and, and things like that. So I, I just love, I'm so tickled with the possibilities either way. I think all whatever whatever the cause or whatever the kind of the metaphor that comes with it, I think overall it's becoming so much more clear to any of the naysayers that trees um, communicate with each other and trees are living. You know, we think of trees not alive, like they're alive, but not alive like humans are alive, you know. Um, right, right. But they speak and they, they have their own languages and they have their own ways of communicating. You're too much. I'm growing away from you, you know, or right. your fungus is interfering with my beauty. I'm going over here, you know, or I want to protect you a little bit more. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to grow a branch over here to lift up your other branches that are a little bit weaker. It's just, it's so extraordinary to me that, um, you know, again, I'm anthropomorphizing like crazy and I love <laughs> anthropomorphizing, but I just love that it's uh, another instance of showing how, how connected we are and how similar we are to vegetation than we may think, you know? Um, I think that for the longest time we were taught like animals, you know, more important and then trees are there to help animals. No, yeah. it's it's absolutely not that way at all. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about what you're saying and I'm th you know, thinking about um interconnection and also attention to to difference. Att yeah. Love it, loving attention yes, to difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I mean this is anthropomorphizing, but under the ground we know that the tree's roots yes. are intertwined through the my mycelial web. Mm -hmm. Um and yet above ground where they differentiate, you have this what almost feels like respect. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's yeah, like let me yeah. step aside so you can shine, yeah. you know, a little bit and right. and I'm not going to I'm not going to harm you, you know. I'm not going to yeah. harm you, you know, as long as you don't harm me, you know, we're we're good. I'm going to we're going to both thrive. And in that way we both do thrive, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I love that. That's going to that's going to haunt me now. I, I thank you so <laughs> much for that because that's been um, you know, you've reached me at the end of the semester where most academics just kind of feel spent and almost vegetal, you know, a little bit. But now this makes me um, get so excited and want to pull down some some um, books on my shelf and, and research this topic a little bit more. I love it. Well, thanks. Thanks to Rob, Rob McFarland. Yes, for Rob. Well. <laughs> um, Amy. Thank you so much for being on Clever Creature. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thank you, Jason. This was so great. It was like talking to an old friend. So um, my best to you and your whole family and new dog during the pandemic. And <laughs> hopefully our paths will cross on the other side of this. That beautiful theme music is by my son, Emre Gotts. Special thanks to Robert McFarlane for the word of the episode, Crown Shyness, and to Germ Bohr for the song of the episode. I'll be back in two weeks with Ajahn Amaro, a Buddhist monk of 45 years in the Thai forest tradition. You can learn more about me on my website, jasongotts.com, and I'd be grateful if you took a moment to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. <laughs>